This episode of Mollyful Answers is supported by NetSuite, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. Download their free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, today at netsuite.com. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. Greetings, everybody. Well, in this week's episode, it's the June Mailbag, with the help of Ron Gross. Hey, Ron. Hello. Good to be here. It's good to have you back. He's a senior analyst with um, the with us, with The Motley Fool. You may have um, heard of it. You may have heard of it. <laughs> That's why I happened to be here. Yeah. <laughs> it worked out perfectly. He's going to help us answer your questions about how to read an earnings report, buying your first investment, and what the heck is EBITDA. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. Well, let's just get into it, shall we? We shall. Our first question comes from Tim. I have heard some analysts on Motley Fool Podcast discuss companies non-GAAP numbers, G-A-A-P numbers, and often followed with a chuckle, a, a knowing <laughs> like, like this joke. <laughs> <laughs> non-GAAP numbers. Silliness. <sighs> My question is, why is non-GAAP useful in evaluating a business? If their numbers are not in line with GAAP, what can be learned from those statistics? And if I remember right, GAAP is general something accounting yeah, principles. Yes, generally accepted, accepted accounting, accounting principles. principles. Here we go. Ready? This is going to get a little weedy, but I'll try to make it fun. Not, so, not the cannabis. <laughs> so, no, in, we in, the chuckle, weeds, so. in the weeds. <laughs> so companies must follow GAAP accounting. Um, by law. I don't know if law is the right word. By regulation. By accounting law. But sometimes both companies and analysts want to make adjustments and look at things a little bit differently. Often that's because a company will have a one-time charge that doesn't recur, a non-recurring event, a non-recurring charge. So the company will want to point that out to investors, and analysts will want to do a little digging of their own and start to make adjustments. Could that example be like a lawsuit payout? Absolutely. Or what are some other examples of a one-time charge? Uh, uh, something weather-related. Oh yeah, um, blaming you know, the weather is good. <laughs> well, <laughs> China, but, but I meant China. like you know like if, if there's a manufacturing facility yeah. that has to close down for a few days because it was a hurricane, or you know, or even layoffs that have never happened before. Um, you wouldn't want to necessarily project those into the future. Um, so we want to make adjustments. But when a company does that, they're in violation of GAAP. So they have to point out that they're they're introducing non-GAAP numbers to, to the world. And they, they really have to make that very clear. Um, and it's supposed to be helpful to investors. Um, the one thing, uh, the one caveat I would say is, if these adjustments are being made because of what we just said, one-time events, non-recurring events, let's all be very sure that we buy into the fact that they're non-recurring. And restructuring charges are, are kind of a, a notorious thing here. There are many companies that somehow seem to have a restructuring in some form every single year, but yet they count them as non-recurring. A good analyst, a good investor, will recognize that that's a little bit. Of, uh, they're playing some shenanigans here, and let's actually count that as a recurring expense and and not give the company credit for this one-time event. So you, you got to be careful, but they can be very helpful. We we as analysts adjust income statements all the time for things um, that aren't really kosher from a gap accounting perspective because. 
you know, accounting rules can be kind of wonky, and sometimes they don't reflect reality. Um, especially things like depreciation and amortization, which are non-cash expenses. People play around with those, make adjustments for those. So, non-GAAP is actually quite helpful. How much of your time as an analyst and an investor do you spend looking at these numbers, GAAP or non-GAAP or otherwise, versus anecdotally kind of looking into the company and thinking about their future? I would say most of the time should be um, looking at the qualitative, the words. What does the mm-hmm. company do? How does it make money? Who's the management team? Does the company have a competitive advantage? Um, who are the competitors? What's their market share like? All those things that really help you understand a business. And then maybe 25%, just making that up, is digging into the numbers. What do the growth trends look like? Is revenue trending upwards? Or are they profitable? What do their margins look like? And then we can kind of use all that information to maybe get a gauge of whether we think the stock price is fair, uh, cheap, or expensive at, a, at any given time. But most of the time, especially for just non-analysts, everyday investors, I think you mo- want to spend most of the time just trying to understand the business. Um, I kind of ended up accidentally, inadvertently jumping ahead to a future question. So we're going to talk about what you just said okay. even more in just a minute. <laughs> but first off, we're going to get our question from Ross. My parents are retiring in a few years, and they plan on retiring with a 90-10 split of stocks and cash, with the cash covering about two years of expenses. Should I try harder to get my parents to change their allocations? Is the two years of cash enough to meaningfully offset stock market drops enough relative to a traditional split? Well, Ross, I'll start with the guidance we provide in Rural Retirement, and that is for the retiree portfolio, it's that classic 60% stocks, 40% bond split. We also talk about an income cushion of three to five years of portfolio provided income outside of the stock market in cash, short term bonds, because historically, bear markets last about three years from peak to trough to peak again, though there are many that last longer. So, three to five years out of the stock market, I think, is a start. So, yes, your your gut reaction that maybe your parents are being a too aggressive makes sense to some degree. That said, there are situations when it's okay to be more aggressive with your portfolio. Maybe they have a pension. Maybe they have business income. Maybe they have rental property. So, they have other sources of income that they can rely on that allow them to be a little bit more aggressive in their portfolios. Um, if you look at the safe withdrawal rate uh, research, definitely indicates that the optimal stock allocation is between 50 and 70%, maybe 75% is high. But it's actually not quite as dire if you go higher than that, and we'll talk about why, and I'll give you an example. So, in 2013, Warren Buffett, in his annual letter, said that he's directed in his will that when he passes on, his wife's portfolio will be 90% S&P 500, 10% short-term bonds. Now, on one hand, of course, whatever she's going to inherit, he didn't say how much, but it's probably in the tens of millions. I would think that's fair. <laughs> Enough, right. Yeah. So, when you have that much money, when the market drops 50%, you're probably okay. But in 2015, an economist, Javier Estrada, took a look at this and said, okay, this is Buffett's advice. How would that have worked out over the 30 year per- period starting in 1900, so every 30 year period, all the way up through? Uh, the period ending 2014, 90% stocks, 10% bonds, 4% withdrawal rate. The withdrawals are coming proportionately from the stocks and the bonds, 90%, 10%, and then rebalanced annually. And how many 30-year periods did that person run out of money? Only 2.3% of the time. 
Nice. So it's actually not quite as risky huh. as you might think. That said, in 10% of the time, the, this retiree was getting close to like having only 20% left of their portfolio. So it's still pretty risky. But he came up with two other tweaks to it. One was, uh, when you take out the withdrawal, anytime the stock market is up, you take it from stocks. If it's down, you take it from the bonds. And then the other tweak was, anytime stocks outperform, whatever it was outperforming, you take the money from. So if stocks did better than bonds, you take it from stocks. If bonds did better, you take it from bonds. What did that do? Actually increase the upside potential and downside protection. So it's even safer. So the bottom line is, while I think that for most retirees, having 90% in the stock market is too aggressive, and I would just talk to your parents and say, what's going to happen if we have another decade like we had the first decade of this century, where we had two significant bear markets, and over the whole 10-year period, stocks lost money? Do they have a backup plan? Talk to them about that. But as long as the future looks vaguely like the past, it's actually not as risky as we might think. May I ask a question? Please I know do. I know I'm the new guy. Right? Is that allowed? <laughs> sure. Yes. Um, I'll allow it. Is it fair to say that once once you reach a certain age, let's say you're in your 90s, that you can start to think of it no longer as your portfolio, but the portfolio of your heirs? And if your heirs are 40s or 50 years old, then 90% stocks for those folks Maybe perfectly appropriate? Yes, absolutely. And there's some research that came out maybe four or five years ago by Wade Fowle, who's been on our show, and Michael Kitsis. And they actually found that it actually makes sense to reduce your stock allocation right around retirement, but as you get older, to increase your stock allocation, largely because of that. In mm-hmm. the end, most of the money that you have is going to be left to your heirs. Cool. All right, next question comes from Montage. I'm a student who's just beginning to get into the world of investing. I always hear that you should read earnings reports for the companies you invest in. What can I do to make sense of the numbers? I have no idea if the numbers are good or bad. Should I just be reading more other financially literate people's analysis? Oh, so this this is we did discuss a little I bit did, in yeah, the previous question. I, yes, I but we can revisit it. This is good. Um, so I think it's always good to read what a company says. Um, focusing on the words first. Let's let's leave the numbers aside, and that has to do with what a company does and how it makes money. But each quarter, how's it doing? The CEO will make comments. There'll be often a conference call where analysts can ask questions. So it's really nice to just hear what the company has to say. Then you can look at the numbers and focus on the trends. You don't have to be an expert about what a good gross margin is, or a good operating margin is, or how to even calculate free cash flow. Look at the trends. Is the company making more revenue, uh, increasing their revenue each year? Are they increasing their profits each year? Is it go up, down, up, down, up, down? Are those things maybe deteriorating and going down? Looking at trends can tell you a lot. And used in conjunction with what the CEO is telling you about their business should be really enough, I think, for the average investor. When you listen, do you listen much to the earnings calls? I read them more than I listen listen to to them. I'm wondering how often you can just tell in a CEO's tenor how excited she or he is about the future of the company. If they're just like, oh, you you can, but you have to be careful because some CEOs are salesmany, mm-hmm. you know, salesy, 
And you don't really like that. Um, mm-hmm. I don't like um, when CEOs talk about their stock price a lot. Um, I want them to talk about the business and let the stock worry about itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but you know, you can you can gauge if, if someone is really upbeat in their in their business. But if it doesn't jive with the way the numbers look, then it look, it seems a little fishy. So you want the the two things to go hand in hand. Yeah. So what about reading other people's analysis? Always good if you can get your hands on other people's analysis. It's sometimes quite difficult to, you know, maybe get your hands on a Goldman Sachs report or a Morgan Stanley report. But we are here as fools for our members, and um, that's what we do all day long: is read these reports and and, and offer our opinions. So um, definitely, this is one place you can come and trust. And then you, um, you know, Google is there for you too. You can always uh, Google a company, and you'll you'll get an article here or there from a financial expert or perhaps an analyst, um, and you know all that information is useful too. Next question comes from Ray. My wife and I have been married for five years and are expecting our first child later this year. Aww, yay! <laughs> She's 38 with no job and no savings. I am her retirement plan. I'm 37. I contribute to the thrift savings plan and have three years to go until I'm eligible for my pension. I have two additional brokerage accounts as I pick socks as a hobby. I think he meant stocks, but you never know. <laughs> I love that idea. Like, I just like to spend my time pointing at socks. I choose you. That's awesome. I do have a four hundred one k where someone holds uh, Babe Ruth's bat in the account. So oh, really? I don't know. Maybe he wow. has a collection of well, very valuable, joke, famous socks. We used to joke about starting Sock Advisor, right? Wasn't that a joke around the office? We're going to start like Sock Advisor. Sure, it was perfect yeah. April Fool's yeah. joke. Sorry, Ray likes to probably pick stocks as a hobby and not socks, but we like both ideas. I would really like for both of us to be working toward a retirement plan together, but whenever I mention money, she gets upset. Here's a direct quote from her. Why are you always trying to get me to get a job? Another common line from her is, do you ask your mother to work? My mother is 70 plus and retired. Can you help me understand her and or help me convince her to see the need for income both now and later in life? Boy, this is wow. a tricky one. You need a, it's a we marriage need a counselor, not yeah. a personal well, finance. We're, we're getting there. We're getting there. Uh, so, first of all, congrats on the new yes, banking. Yes, for sure. That's great news. Um, and so, there is a somewhat objective right answer to this, right? That is, how much you should be saving for retirement to meet your goals. So, one possibility is to get a fee-only financial advisor to sit down and say, okay, this is when you want to retire, or this is how much you want to save for your kids' college educations. Also, do you, does your, is your wife going to stay home with the kids? What are the consequences of that? Or what's the cost of daycare? To look at all those and say, okay, you are saving enough or you are not. Mm-hmm. Start there. That said, it, it may not be enough because there's clearly a little bit of tension here. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yes, a marriage counselor is probably a good idea. I've mentioned before the Financial Therapy Association. I went to their annual meeting last month. Um, you can go to the website of the Financial Therapy Association, put in your zip code, and it'll tell you whether there's a financial therapist in that area. Most of them, I shouldn't say most of them, a lot of them have experience in couples counseling to begin with, that they started their career that way. But I think you are going to have to work this out. Um, and really, it might be just that she just doesn't want to work and she wants to stay home and take care of the kids, which is a very difficult thing to do and a very noble thing to do. If you're going to get a pension and you're contributing to the TSP, you may be financially okay. My total armchair therapist advice <laughs> is that usually when people respond with anger and exclamation points, they're coming from a place of fear. 
and that she's when she's saying, "Are you trying to get me a job?" and she's angry and she thinks that maybe, um, maybe she thinks you think she's lazy, and oh. it sounds like maybe you do. But also, maybe she's just scared of getting back out there and getting a job and finding something that she loves to do. And maybe it's a matter of being like, well, what do you want? It like, is there something you want to do? Is there like what would be what would make you excited to go to work every day? Because that's fulfilling. I mean, we just talked about that with yeah. with our with the expert from AARP that like having a job. Raising and again, raising kids is so hard, and that is, is a job. That is absolutely a job. Um, but having you know work outside of the house can be fulfilling and exciting too if you find the right thing, right? For sure. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. So that's my advice: is to maybe see if she's scared yeah. and that she's responding from that. That's great advice. That is good advice. Hey, I like it. Thanks. It is. No, it's very valuable <laughs> advice because all I can say is. One other thing that I forgot to mention was that uh, she actually can start saving for her retirement because if you are married and you are earning an income, the spouse can open the IRA. It's called a spousal IRA. Oh. So, so that way you can start building up a retirement account for her, which is good. And I would also say to her, she should know that um, if the uh, unfortunate happens and you get divorced, there are plenty of studies that have shown that it's harder on someone who is a stay-at-home spouse who has not built up their own savings, not build up their own credit score, not build up their own job skills. So it can be something that she wants to think about in terms of just sort of... Maybe he frames it, if I die, rather yeah, than if I get divorced. That's a much better <laughs> one. Maybe a better way to frame it. You don't need to, uh, your own earned income to contribute to a spousal IRA? Is, right. that, is that the benefit of it? Yes. That you don't actually that is, have? It's oh, the, just about the only example where you can have money put into an IRA for you where you're not actually earning the money. 5500 too? 6000 It went up this it year. Went up. Hmm, yeah. Wow. Nice. Thanks to NetSuite for supporting Motley Fool Answers. If you're a small business owner, you know how hard it can be to get a handle on all those numbers, often because you have so many systems, one for accounting, one for sales. It's inefficient, and that hurts your bottom line. NetSuite by Oracle is the world's number one cloud business system. It handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform, giving you the visibility and control you need to grow. With NetSuite, you save time, money, and unneeded headaches by managing sales, finance, accounting, orders, and HR instantly, right from your desktop or phone. And right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights with a free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at netsuite.com. That's netsuite.com to download your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, netsuite.com. Send me an email. All right, next question comes from Dave. Have been listening to Answers and Rule Breaker Investing for a couple years, and that experience drew me into joining both Stock Advisor and Rule Your Retirement. Great. One of the things that concerns me is that I still feel like I'm somewhat blind in my investing approach. I would like to learn more about how to determine the value of a company. Ideally, you guys are rule breakers could do a regular episode on how to do that. If I cannot entice you, some recommendations for a non-finance person on how to get started would be appreciated. Ron, this oh, Dave. question is so near, near <laughs> Oh, heart. Dave. I could teach you a semester-long class on valuation. Um, maybe two semester-long classes. So I'll give you 10 seconds of, of, of free advice. I'll do my best. I think the simplest thing for an individual investor to do is focus on what we call relative valuation measures. And those are basically in the form of ratios. Price-to-earnings ratio is probably the one that people are most familiar with, P-E ratios. 
Other valuable ones would be the enterprise value to EBITDA ratio or the price to operating cash flow ratio. More and on EBITDA later. later. Yeah, I teased. <laughs> teaser for you. I was um, going to turn it off, but so, now I'm staying. <laughs> you come for the ratios, you stay for the EBITDA. Um, so here's what you do: you can calculate these ratios, but as I mentioned, they are relative valuation metrics, which means you need to compare them to something. They are not, they're not useful in a vacuum just by themselves. So what do you compare them to? Let's take a PE ratio. Let's say you calculate a PE ratio of a company and it turns out to be 18. That means the price is 18 times the earnings, price divided by earnings. What does 18 times mean in a vacuum? Nothing. But if you compare it to its peers or its competitors and you see that those are trading at 25 times earnings while your company is only at 18, well that's something interesting to note. It may be an indication that your company is cheaper. Cheaper being an interesting word, but perhaps uh, undervalued relative to the peers. You can also compare that 18 number to how that company traditionally has traded in the past. Again, if that company traditionally trades at 14 times earnings and now it's 18, well, based on historic data, that company could potentially be expensive right now. And the third thing you could compare it to is the market as a whole. The S&P 500 has its own P/E ratio. So you can look at how your company is trading relative to the market as a whole and compare that to historical data as well. Three different ways that you can get a gauge on a relative valuation metric. An absolute valuation metric would be something like running a discounted cash flow. And that's a whole semester in and of itself. We won't go down that road. I don't think it's really necessary for an individual investor. But using some some key metrics, some key ratios would be a, just a really nice um, thing to add into the research you do, with most of the research being focused on, is this a good company? Do, the they, do, they, do they make money? Are, are they profitable? Do you like the management team? All those good things. Does PE ratio work particularly well for some industries versus others? Like I feel like you wouldn't use a PE ratio to understand a bank's yep. profitability, right? Exactly the the right example I would have given. For for financials I, I tend to shy away from PE ratios. In general, truth be told, I prefer a cash flow metric, a cash flow ratio, um, which is the two, the other two examples I gave are more cash flow oriented. Um, earnings because of gap accounting like we discussed earlier can sometimes be a little misleading. So if we if we look at cash flow instead, it takes away some some of the the wonkiness of gap accounting. Um, so if if possible, it's a little harder to calculate. You know, P divided by E is is easier than figuring out enterprise value and EBITDA. But if you if you can or you sometimes can just get these metrics online calculated for you, um, they're good to focus on. All right, next question comes from Bill. I purchased shares of a foreign company over the counter through an ADR. What does ADR stand for? American Depository Receipt. Thank you. All indicators said it pays a good dividend, and it does. But a big chunk is taken in German taxes. Ach du Liebe! They take a lot. <laughs> I know you can't give tax advice, but what comments do you have? Well, this actually is pretty frequent where the when you buy shares of a foreign company, the government will take some of those dividends. Um, and you'll see exactly how much at the end of the year when you get your 1099 div DIV, box seven, it tells you how many taxes were withheld. The good news is you can get most or all that back in the form of a tax credit, as long as you know to do that on your tax return. So in your case, Bill, it sounds like you probably can get most of that back. That said, if you are holding this company, in an IRA or 401k, you cannot take the credit. 
So you just lose it. So then people will say, well, should I hold all my foreign stocks outside of my IRA? I would say if you're still saving for retirement and you're many years away from needing the money, I think it's still better to keep it in an IRA or a 401k because you don't want to pay taxes on those dividends each and every year. Even though many stock foreign stocks do keep some of those taxes, on whole, the average international stock yields more than the average U.S. stock. So even accounting for those taxes, you're still probably getting a higher yield than you're getting from a U.S. stock. All right, next question comes from PT in Utah. Why do we care about EBITDA? <laughs> Good question. I know what it stands for, I know what it means, but I must not know what it means because I always think, why not tell me EABITDA, earnings after EBITDA? Oh my goodness, no. now we got a lot. Uh, we'll EBITDA get into this. This is, is like GBBPCIS, grades before party, beer parties, and calling in sick. Oh boy. All right. For, 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 for the rest oh, of the audience, so let's funny. define EBITDA. Earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. And what it is, is it's a quick and dirty method of estimating operating cash flow. All over Wall Street, investment bankers all over the world right now are talking about EBITDA <laughs> because, because it's just a really quick way to think about cash flow. Now, I say operating cash flow rather than total cash flow or free cash flow because this just focuses on the operating business. It removes interest because it's before interest. Interest is not an operating decision of management, it's a financing capital decision of management. It's different than do you make a good product and do you sell it for a fair price and make a profit? So, if we want to just look at the operating business, let's remove the effect of interest. We also take out taxes because there's a lot of decisions um, that affect taxes that everybody has to pay them by law. But it's, if we really just want to focus on do you sell your product, do you make a profit, let's, let's just remove taxes for analysis purposes. And finally, the big, bigger deal here is we want to remove the impact of depreciation and amortization, which are non-cash expenses. When you buy a big manufacturing facility for $500 million, gap accounting lets you divide that amount by 15 or 20 years and deduct from your income that 1 15th as an expense, which lowers your profits, which lowers the taxes you have to pay. So, it's a tax benefit. But it's non-cash. You didn't really have that expense. So, we adjust for it to get an idea of the actual cash flow a company has. If you owned 100% of that company yourself, how much actual cash could you put in your pocket at the end of each year? That's different than gap net income. It's not the same thing. So, we make adjustments here to look at operating cash flow to get a better understanding of how this business is performing and how much cash they're actually producing. And you're fine with EBITDA. I'm a big fan. Big fan. <laughs> All right, bro. Next question comes from Mike. I'm 37, and I know I have too much money in a savings account, about 200000 I want to eventually be a homeowner again, but the timing isn't right to buy because of my job. I don't want to buy more individual stocks because I look at them as only a long-term play, and I don't want to get crushed on capital gains taxes if when I sell. What suggestion do you have on making my liquid money work for me? It's already in a savings account, earning 2% interest. There have to be better options that won't lock my money away for two-plus years. Also, when do you suggest individuals start working with a financial advisor? Well, Mike, I totally agree that if your job is in any sort of flux that you don't want to be buying a house, we've talked about that on a couple of episodes now, it's definitely a long-term proposition. So, I agree with you waiting on that. You said you want to avoid stocks because you don't want to get crushed by capital gains taxes. 
just so that you know, you know, the, for most people, the capital gains rate on long-term capital gains is only 15%. Uh, and of course, you're only paying that because you made a profit. So I wouldn't let taxes necessarily prevent you from investing. Um, I would say if you do think you're going to need the money in the next two years, I wouldn't invest it. But anytime I hear someone say, I don't want to do something because of the taxes, it just raises a, a yellow flag for me. Um, now, as for what to do with your cash, you're already earning 2%, which is great because the vast majority of people are letting their cash sit in their banks and they're earning like nothing. So that's good. And fortunately, I don't have too many other great options. There are some credit unions that will pay very attractive rates on a certain amount of money that you have. So I looked this morning. A credit union called Consumers Credit Union pays 5.09 percent. Wow! Wow! But, but. there's a but. There's got to be a but. Right. So it's only on balances up to ten thousand dollars. After that, it pays like 0.2 percent. <laughs> there you yeah. go. But plenty of other things like you have to make 12 debit card point of sale purchases without yeah, using the yeah. pin. You have to log in once a month. Mm. You have to sign for you. So there's some criteria. Yeah. That said. I think it's still worth looking at what credit unions are offering in your area, which you can do by just visiting mycreditunion.gov. You might find something there for at least a little bit of your money. Beyond that, we have The Ascent, which is a site owned by The Motley Fool, which will help you find higher-yielding accounts. You can get a savings account yielding upwards of 2.4%. One-year CDs, upwards of 2.8%. So I think those are worth looking at. But generally speaking, you're not going to get anything like 4 5 6%. What are CDs doing these days? Two point eight percent. Yeah, if you want to go, if you could never get four or five percent for cash, that means the stock market's in trouble. By the way. <laughs> <laughs> so be careful what you wish right. for. Right, right, right. <laughs> but the, the, this is like the classic. I think it was Will Rogers who said this. You're you're more interested about the return of your money than the return on your money. If you're looking for something that is safe and liquid, and then your final question: When do you get a financial advisor? As soon as you ask the question, if you think you might need a financial advisor, it's certainly worth doing it. Just based on what you've told me already, it sounds to me like you certainly have a complicated enough finances where a financial advisor could probably give you some good advice. All right, next question comes from Tristan. I just turned 23 this April. Yay! I've been listening to Motley Fool podcasts and reading articles on first investments for the past few weeks, thanks to my uncle. Oh, what a great uncle. I have earned a bonus at work and I would like to begin my portfolio. I'm curious about where you think is a great place to begin. To me, investing in the S&P 500 seems like a fairly safe first investment. If I understand things correctly, in the past three years, the S&P 500 has actually gone down in price or just hasn't performed as well as the overall market. What do you think? Well, I love the fact that you're thinking about getting into investing at 23 years old. Outstanding. Go for it. Um, So, I do like the diversification of an index fund for a first investment, Um, something like an S&P 500, either the ETF, like the Spiders, SPY, or from like Vanguard, Vanguard 500. It gives you instant diversification. You own little pieces of each of the 500 companies, and then you can start building your portfolio with individual companies after that. Respect to the performance of the S&P 500, which you just mentioned, yes, in 2018, it was a bit shaky. In fact, the S&P 500 was down. But over the last decade, um, the S&P 500 has performed um, wonderfully. um, And including this year, um, it is very strong as well. Um, When you reference the S&P 500 versus the market, the S&P 500 is the market, or at least it's a proxy that that we use to to approximate the market. So it's almost anonymous. If we say the market or we say the S&P 500, 
we're kind of saying the same thing you, typically. Um, and I think it's, it'd be a perfectly fine place for your first investment. You, you might have an opinion, bro. Yeah, I would just say that you're right. The, the S&P 500 is a proxy for the market. What it's missing is mid-caps and small-cap stocks. So, if you wanted something that is really the total U.S. stock market, is a Vanguard um, ETF VTI that owns thousands of stocks. Um, over the long term, because it does have some of those smaller companies, I'm going to guess that it might outperform the S&P 500 by a percentage point or so, maybe. Um, but if you feel like you even want more diversification than the S&P 500, I think that's a good option. I would suggest it might be more fun for Tristan if Tristan did some in the S&P 500, but then also maybe bought a stock or two that they were interested in. That might help get them more excited about investing. No, I, I think that's, that, that's, yes. that's totally fair. For me, the the very first button I press would probably be for the index fund, yeah. but right, right thereafter, especially if, if I had money left over or would have money coming in shortly thereafter, finding a company that I really love or a product that I use, um, something that I care about, that I would actually really get a kick out of being a part owner of. Uh, I would do a little research into that company, make sure it's a well-run company first. Um, just don't assume because you like Snickers that the company that makes Snickers is a good company. Do a little research, and then I think that's a great thing to do. Next question comes from Zach. My wife and I are in our late 20s, and we're each opening an IRA. The Vanguard fund minimum is 3000 and the Roth IRA contri- contribution limit is 4500 Should we each add 4500 to one fund each year, but diversify in two or three years, or use Vanguard ETFs with lower minimums? Funds! <laughs> <laughs> well, so kudos to Zach and his wife yeah. for starting to save for retirement in their 20s. Um, you mentioned that the contribution limit is 4500 Actually, as we mentioned earlier in the show, it's actually $6,000 um, in this year. And I think the key there is, Sometimes you can go on the internet, look for some information, and basically you've stumbled upon an outdated article. So I think it's always important to make sure when it comes to taxes and retirement savings that you are looking at something that was published in that year so that you have the most recent numbers. You highlight something that has come up before in discussions with people that I've talked about who love Vanguard, but they do have these higher fund minimums. Some other companies have lower fund minimums, like Schwab's index funds have lower minimums. But really, you can get around all that by just opening a Vanguard brokerage account, if you love Vanguard. Mm-hmm. As we do. As we do. Yeah. And you can buy all their ETFs, one share at a time, commission-free. So, it's very easy, with a very small amount of money, to get a very diversified portfolio. Just make sure that you're, generally speaking, when you're buying ETFs, that you are reinvesting the dividends. Those are, that's, all, that's the default. For all traditional mutual funds, it's not necessarily default for all ETFs, and that you're not paying commissions on reinvested dividends. In the vast majority of brokerages, you don't do that, but there still are a couple that will charge you for reinvesting the dividends. And our last question comes from Al. I have a very basic question, but I'm trying to work out how the price of the shares in my portfolio are calculated. Often, when I think the price will remain steady or go up a little, it will go down. Is there an algorithm that is used or some sort of formula that I can use to determine share prices? No, there's not, Al. And this is important, okay? Share prices of stocks are all based on the supply and demand for that stock. So, all day long, the stock market is a huge auction, which people want to buy stock and sell stock. And the prices move up and down based on the supply and demand. The supply and demand is based on fundamentals. Is the company a good company? Are earnings growing? Is it a good management team? What are the expected growth rates? And all day long, auction, 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 
buy, sell, buy, sell, no algorithm. So, but basically, when you look that stock up, and I'll quote Yahoo Finance or Molly Fool, that's the price. No calculations involved. No calculations. It's often the last trade of the day if you're if you're looking after the market has closes. Whatever, the market really matches up a buyer and a seller. That's what it really is. It's like eBay. You know, you want to sell something, you want to sell a Cabbage Patch doll, and somebody wants to buy it, and you settle on a price. That's really what the stock market is. So, whenever you look at a quote. At any point in the day, that's typically the last trade of the uh, that happened in the actual stock market. Now, one other thing: if it's a mutual fund price you're looking at, or an ETF, an exchange traded fund price you're looking at, that's different. That's the actual value of all the stocks in the portfolio divided by the shares outstanding um, in that portfolio, and that that's that's actually a calculation that mutual funds and, and ETFs have to calculate on a daily basis to figure out what. The price is of that fund, but I think the the uh, Al was talking mostly about stocks. So you just got to think it's an auction, supply and demand, people asking to buy, people asking to sell. Market makers match those two things up. Actually, computers do it nowadays most of the time, and those then that's the price. I'll build on what you just said there because yeah. and it builds on our previous question and the really one of the big differences between ETFs. And traditional open and mutual funds, ETFs trade throughout the day, so yep. you will see their prices go up and down. Open and mutual funds, like the ones you probably have in your four hundred one k, they're not valued until the end of the day. So when you put in an order to buy or to sell, you actually don't know the price you're going to get until the market closes and it gets settled up at the end of the day. So um, that's actually a good point. So. I think I actually misspoke because ETFs are are based on supply and demand. The price of those move just like stocks. But what you said was true in right. that that price is reflective of all the underlying securities, Correct. and there does have to be some calculating going on for that. Yeah. But what's interesting is sometimes the actual price that an ETF is trading at can can diverge yes. from the actual underlying value, and there are actually investors that that make a living trying to find that divergence. That small little that arbitrage, small, small and that's what keeps the prices generally close. And for the big ETFs, it's 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 almost negligible. Right. For smaller ETFs, more obscure ETFs, um, I just saw, I just learned about an ETF that invests in companies that provide pet care. Mm-hmm. The ticker is PAWS. Cute. So I don't know about how frequently <laughs> traded that ETF is. Yeah, I feel for Al though. When I think the price will remain steady or go up a little, it will go down. Yeah, but, but that is an interesting <laughs> point that we didn't address. It's it's all based on what the the market as a whole thinks, what institutional traders think, what analysts are putting out there. So you might read a headline and say, "Ooh, I think this company is going to have a really good day." But then, when you look under the hood a little more, or maybe read the press release, or listen to the transcript, or hear what an analyst has to say, turns out it wasn't as rosy as maybe the headline uh, indicated, and the stock will actually trade down that day, whereas you would have guessed it trade would have traded up. There is some amount of, um, as with anything in life, um, when you get experienced enough, like reading financial news and reading how analysts react, um, that you miss as a new investor. Like I, it took me a while to realize, like, oh, a company can beat, can have an amazing quarter, but because they didn't beat analyst expectations, the stock will take a hit. Yep. Or maybe they didn't beat analyst expectations as much as the right. analysts wanted. Yep. So in, in the short term, stocks trade on on reality versus expectations. In the longer term, stocks trade based on whether the companies are mm-hmm. good or not. So, so take heart that if you're a long term buy and hold investor, it all shakes out in the end. But on a daily basis, anything can happen.
Ron, that's it. Thank you so much for joining us Thank today. Thank you. Lots of fun. Always happy to be here. Oh, we love having you. How about a let's close on a super exciting note with a disclaimer. Let's do it. <laughs> Woo! As oh, yeah. always, the Motley Fool might have formal recommendations for or against the stocks we talked about today. Don't buy and sell stocks based on what you heard on this show. Or something like that. I think I got most of the words right on that disclaimer. <laughs> Nobody call the SEC. I'm, I think I got that mostly right. Thanks again, Ron. Thank you for having me. Hey, let's head to the postcards. Oh, let's do so. So, also, let me um, say how much a joy it was to meet so many of our listeners at oh, yeah. Fool Fest. That's um, the highlight of Fool Fest. I met people like Melanie and Rita and Luis, and a bunch of you just ran up and said, I love the podcast, and then you ran away, so I didn't get a chance to catch your name. <laughs> but you're all wonderful, and you're all welcome to come up and chat longer next time. Um, some people even yelled, stocks, which made me laugh, because <laughs> it always does. <laughs> all right. <laughs> All right, so let's head to the postcards. So apparently, Mark dropped by Full HQ and um, dropped off his own handmade postcard and yelled, what? Stocks! <laughs> so he just, just wrote a piece it on a piece of paper. Of paper. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. Uh, Rich sent a postcard from uh, Texas and he's still traveling, travel hacking his way around. There's a big cow. Uh, Mark sent a card from Tampa. Well, he's <gasps> from Tampa. Go Bucks! No. I got my Bucks shirt on. Sorry. He's from Tampa. Well, that's still good. He's a Bucks fan, I'm sure. Okay, he's from Tampa, but he sent us a card from Mont Saint Michel, which is so beautiful. Look at that. That's like that's a, so that cool. place is like a fairy tale. I've never been. Uh, Don sent a card from the Museum of the Bible just down the street in DC. Oddly enough, it's our first card from DC. Really? He knew it was going to be our first guy from DC. Museum of the Bible. Yeah, it's new. Uh, Thad's wrote. Oh, I wonder if that's the same Thad that we answered a question from earlier. Wrote in from Biloxi to say how he's um, been enjoying the Major Money Event series. How nice is that? Good. Glad, glad you're enjoying it. Yeah. Sarah sent a card from the Alhambra in Spain. I went there. This I went there. That was amazing. And then Swimmingly Jim sent a card from a board gaming convention in Seattle. Oh, wow. Oh, I'm going to be there very soon. You are going to be there in like very soon. So. It's in tomorrow. But for when people are listening, it's actually in the past. Right. It so I, so, so when they're listening to him, I am home. Don't try to break into my house. Or do. Or just say <laughs> hi. Because he missed seeing you at Full Fest. And I think you're all wonderful. <laughs> Oh, anyway, we appreciate you guys sending in those postcards. If you other fellow listeners would like to send in a postcard, we would love to receive it. Um, Our address is 2000 Duke Street, Alexandria, Virginia, 22314. They still still continue to bring much joy to my life, getting these cards from you guys. So thank you so much. All right, that's the show. Our email is answers at fool.com. The show is edited... Non-gappingly. Non-gappingly by Rick Engdahl. (laughs) For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Bye.